The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 12th Doctor story, The Woman Who Lived. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page. We have facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. You can retweet us on Twitter where we're at SQPN. And be sure to leave comments wherever you find us and comment on the episodes as you see them. And we'll read them back as feedback in future episodes. We want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash secrets. And uh, this time we're talking about The Woman Who Lived, as I mentioned. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? This week, the Twelfth Doctor lands in a companion light episode that doesn't have Clara until the final scene. The bulk of the episode happens in England in 1651, where the Doctor, which is 10 years after the publication of John Playford's The Complete Dancing Master, by the way, (laughs) um, and and the Doctor meets a shielder from last episode. She's now 800 years old and has forgotten her name. She refers to herself just as me. She's become a highwayman and never used the second immortality charge the doctor left her with because nobody ever turned out to be good enough. And she's extremely bored and wants to become the doctor's companion, but the doctor resists that plan. Ashilder has also formed an alliance with a fire-breathing lion man alien, and they've been seeking an artifact that brought the lion man to our world from another dimension. The lion man has promised to take her with him and roam the cosmos if they get the artifact. The artifact also requires the death of a person to function, and a shoulder's okay with that. Another local highwayman, Sam Swift the Quick, is about to be executed, and the Lion Man and a shoulder plan to use his death to open a portal. But the doctor uses the psychic paper to fake a pardon, so Sam Swift is pardoned, upsetting their plans. A shoulder then uses the artifact to kill Sam Swift, and the portal opens. Only the Lion Man betrays a shoulder, and people from his dimension start using special effects to attack the village. Realizing that she really does care about the people in the village who are about to be killed, a shoulder redeems herself. With the doctor's guidance, she uses the second immortality charge to save Sam Swift, closing the portal. And the Lion Man's people then conveniently disintegrate him so that we don't need to worry about him anymore. Afterwards, the doctor tells a shoulder to watch over the newly immortal Sam Swift. He explains that the reason he wouldn't take her on as a companion is that they're both immortals, and they need to be surrounded by short-lived people to remember the important things like the value of life. A shoulder's okay with this, and she says she'll be watching over the planet Earth and helping the people that the doctor leaves behind. In the final scene, when Clara shows up, she shows the Doctor a cell phone selfie, and the Doctor sees a shoulder watching over Clara in the background of the selfie. The end. That's one of the longest recaps I think you've had to do in a while. There's a lot. Yeah, there's, this, this one is pretty complex, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's start with overall first impressions, Father Corey. You know, there's parts of this I like. I mean, there's it's kind of fun. It's got some really fun parts. Some of the dialogue is really kind of snappy and kind of fun. I'm not a fan of a shoulder slash me. I really have never been a fan of her. I like, you know, actually, it's funny. So I was I missed the episode when we talked about the previous one. And I realized, you know, I watched that in preparation for this. And, you know, I actually enjoyed most of the first, where she first appears, the episode where she first appears until the very end where she becomes immortal. Well, of course, the problems with that continue into this one because she's still immortal and she's still kind of annoying. And so, uh, there, like I said, there's a lot of this I liked, but it's just if this was told with different characters involved where she wasn't involved, I think it would have been a much better story and a very mm. much more enjoyable story. But because she was the one that was involved, that it caused a lot more problems. Hmm. How about you, Jimmy? Yeah, there is kind of a saccharine aftertaste or a, an aftertaste to a shoulder that could be compared to the bitter aftertaste of saccharine. 
Um, that she's she's I think she's better in this than she is in the previous episode she's in. Uh, she's more interesting as the high women character, and so you know there were substantial chunks of this I liked. What I don't like is Leandro, the the fire breathing lion man alien, who just becomes more annoying as time goes on, mm. and there just seems to be no constraints to this character. Um, he is, I mean, like when he shows up with, he's got a hood on, but it doesn't cover his face and people don't instantly notice that he's a lion man and react the way you would expect 17th century people to react to an obvious lion man. And his fire breathing comes out of nowhere. You know, if you're going to have someone literally breathe fire, they need to do that in their first scene not halfway through the episode. Um, so I, I, there are elements I like. I like the idea of the doctor exploring the, you know, what's, what makes for a good companion. And I like the writers thinking about the value of the doctor having short-lived companions. But his own history contradicts what he says to her about i you know i need i i his i don't want to take on a a a long-lived companion because i need the short-lived ones um he mentions they try to hang a lantern on it uh in this episode or a lampshade um <clears throat> they by pointing out he's traveled previously with captain jack who's also a mortal well, he became immortal after he kind of traveled with the doctor a bit. Um, and he, the doctor never traveled with Captain Jack much. So he was, he was never a primary companion. He he just was in a few episodes, got a few rides in the TARDIS, but it wasn't a long-term companionship. But the doctor has traveled with a character just as long-lived as him, Romana, for mm -hmm. Multiple seasons. I was going to say, yeah, and um, and and it. We never got the sense that the that Tom Baker was losing his appreciation for the value of human life. Um, so I don't think that I, I like conceptually that they're playing in these waters, but they didn't execute it in a way that's consistent with the show's show's own mythology. So, uh. Uh, lots of oh, agreement oh, with both oh, of you, by also, the way. Also, yeah? special effects attack the village. And they <laughs> yes. tell it when we first see the special effects appearing in the vortex, um, you know, someone says, what are those? And they're explained as being, well, they're going to be spaceships that are going to attack the village. Okay, then these spaceships were about a foot tall, and it was those <laughs> tiny aliens from the Twilight Zone. Because they and th their attack strategy is let's plow into things and destroy our spaceship if that glowing thing is a spaceship. Those were not spaceships. Those were just special effects tearing up the village. And I've seen so many special effect attacks on villages. It's not really yes, particularly interesting. Propane pops, you know, propane yeah. explosion, special yep. effect thingies well, with people flying everywhere. And all the villagers decided running willy nilly left and right. OK, run to the left. Now run to the right. Like mm -hmm. run for cover well, and stay do, there. Right. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. don't like go find some place to hide. You know, yeah. no, no. You just got to run around. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Just run out of the village into the forest, whatever. But yeah, I was struggling with um, the quippiest way to to talk about to, to start my overall impression, which is it's either. Worst sequel to The Lion King ever, or... <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Or worst depiction of Aslan. I, I wasn't sure which one. Yeah, Lion King. Lion King. Lion King, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, and you, you uh, forgot that also he's got glowy eyes. Yes. Oh, the glowy eyes. Right. Well, when he's a cat. Wants. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Is it a robot? Nope. Um, I agree with the whole... I, I I didn't love a shoulder in this, and I and I really am curious what would it have been like if it had been Captain Jack. I don't love Captain Jack Harkness as a character. There's weird things about him, but at least he was light and fun most mm -hmm. of the time. And the shoulder was really heavy and dark. Yeah, she's dark and gloomy. 
Yeah. And and I I get it. Like I get the idea that you want to portray the weight of a of a human being living you know forever on this on this in this life that you know it's almost always in in fiction portrayed as this cool thing like Highlander and you know like that you do you want to live forever and what that would be how cool that would be to never have to die and I and I I like the idea of portraying what the weight of that would be actually the downside so that that part is cool but yeah it was a very almost literally dark episode too at times like the there's a lot of this to you were filmed in very dark scenes. So, uh, and the, uh, the resolution was a bit too pat. It was a bit too, let's resolve things by blast special effect. Basically. Mm-hmm. That's the, how we resolve the, the uh, you know, the conflict it, in this. It feels very doctor who paint by numbers. The, mm-hmm. Yeah. The special effect attack. And now we've got a, now we've got a reverse. Now all we have to do to solve the special effect attack problem is, close the portal so we undo the thing that did the thing and then his brother aliens conveniently disintegrate him from the other side of the rift that's now Mm -hmm. closed right because very this is (laughs) come on guys this is well you're not really working at this well they had to they had to force in that that the final conversation between his shoulder and the doctor of well now i'm going to be watching the world for you or again you know right you know, watching out for you. And of course they do the kind of the double, double entendre of either of either, you know, I'm going to be watching, you know, and waiting for you, or I'm going to be watching out and making sure you don't break things more than you already have. And watching over the companions. So we get this presumption that she's been watching over all of the companions, you know, from, you know, Ian and Barbara on, you know, that would be the assumption or, Jamie, frankly, because that, that's uh, something new who was really yeah. brought into is the people who are left behind. And of course, it's the companions that the doctor has changed. And, you know, you right. see that Abandoned. with Rose where becomes she becomes superhero woman, you know? Yeah, it, it is. Um, I, and I get what they're trying to set up is is the eventual where a shelter slash me will end up at the end of this season. You know, clearly, I think Moffat wants to is got this arc going the mm-hmm. me arc. And so. Um, that's, I think that's where that last conversation might've been added by him. Although he doesn't get a credit, a writing credit. So maybe that's not. Yeah. I I found myself wondering just what guidance did, um, I forget the author's name, but Catherine Tregenna. Yeah. I, I wondered what kind of guidance did Moffat give her for writing this? Because Mm -hmm. this presupposes a knowledge of the previous episode, Right. And it's very t- rooted in what happened in that episode. And then it's also pointing forward to where me is going to end up. Um, so I think that Moffat must have given her like, here's here's the here are the essential beats of her arc. Mm. Right? Um, now write a script in this stage of her arc for that, me. That, that makes that's that sounds plausible because, you know, I mentioned him kind of my little my little you know uh, recap or how I felt about this. You know, that I'd watched the previous episode kind of in preparation for this. And up until the last moment where, where she died and then was resurrected, basically, by the, the, the device, um, that point, it felt like, OK, this is where Moffat stepped in and wrote the continuing the, the ending there to so that she can continue. And then so right. I could see that he would have said, OK, here's what had happened before. Here's what you know, here's what you need to kind of say as part of your closing dialogue. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Without giving also, her the exact dialogue. I mean, I, I should yeah. say that's why he doesn't have writing credit. Yeah. Although producers are allowed to do a certain amount of rewriting mm-hmm. uh, to without it violating their role and mandating yeah. that they get a writing credit. Yeah. Um, also, I think that final conversation, as well as some earlier ones in the episode, are also setting up where Clara, what's going to happen to Clara. Mm-hmm. Because at one point, um, you know, a shielder asks the doctor, "Why haven't you made Clara immortal?" Well, she will be by the end, mm-hmm. right? And at, at another point, uh, a shielder tells the doctor, "Clara is going to blow away like smoke," and it's like, okay, that kind of happens yep. with Face the Raven, right? And this idea that she's going to watch over companions, which is ultimately what's going to happen is, is she and Clara undead Clara fly off together in Clara TARDIS. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's true. 
Yeah, they were really hinting at things in this one. Yeah. Um, you know, I I was thinking about this. Why do you think this was written without Clara? Like, why was Clara excluded from this story? Well, it could be. I mean, there. I can think of two reasons. One is they just sometimes do Dr. Light or Companion Light episodes for production reasons. It makes it easier. Mm-hmm. It lets you give people time off. Um the other, I mean, hypothetically, they could have excluded Clara from this so that she wouldn't see the effects of what the doctor did. Because the previous episode ends with him saying, I think I may have made, made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so they could be not having Clara be witness to the magnitude of his mistake. It could be that that will play a role in when Ishildur comes back you know, the, Clara's level of knowledge of all of this. And it could be because they wanted a chance to really focus down on their stunt casting with Maisie Williams mm. and let the doctor and a shoulder have th- almost the whole episode to themselves without having to write Clara in and have her give her stuff to do that would take time away from the shoulder character. That's true. And yeah, and it would have created this, tension where where does clara fall on the ashilder question mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it really yeah. it would have taken away from the doctor really focusing the doctor as an immort- essentially immortal person right and ashilder who's a functionally immortal person um trying to you know the, that conflict and then having this little mortal who's going to blow away like smoke in the middle would have maybe distracted from that and it would have hampered the discussion of the themes that they mm-hmm. wanted to explore if you've got miss mortal right there yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, it is quite a coincidence to the doctor running into uh, a shoulder in 1651. I just was thinking that as I was watching, I'm like, like he didn't expect to find her. He didn't go looking for her. And and in fact, it is kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a character, but it is kind of weird that the doctor would have created this immortal human and not followed up, like well, not checked did. on how she was doing. He did know oh, how right. she was doing. He, When she was founding a leper colony, for example, he watched her from a distance and saw she was doing okay. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. And can he, does he really have the time? I mean, he is a time lord, but still, does he have the time to keep going back every once well, in a while? And it kind of, it was kind of implied that it, the way me kept pushing on, Shilder kept pushing on the doctor about, you, you know, you always run away. You always do this. You always do this. That she was also kind of in a way following the doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, she was kind of she was like uh, Donna, where you know, when Donna came in for her season, where she was rushing to where she knew the doctor was going to be, yeah, and eventually did run into him. And it, it seems like that's what a shoulder was doing as well, is where she was going, was going to those events and places that she figured out that the doctor would eventually show up and was kind of watching him, right, in the background. The, and then it wasn't until this event where they actually ended up meeting meeting up, because the doctor does show up in um, England. Quite a lot between 800 and 1600, yeah. <laughs> very specifically, as mm-hmm. opposed to other places in the world, uh, as we've mentioned before. So what do you think of this idea that the human brain can contain only so much memory? Uh, you know, that's a key point of, of her identity. Okay. So um, one of the it's going to depend on your ontology of humanity and what if you are a materialist reductionist, then it would be true that there is a finite capacity to what the human brain can hold. And at a certain point, you either stop forming new memories or you keep forming new memories and it pushes out old ones. Um, the, In fact, actually, we do have something like that happening regularly. One of the things that happens when we sleep is it helps clean out old memories. I mean, they may still be in there somewhere, but we lose access to them and we keep accessible the memories we really need now one's personal identity is part of that so mm-hmm. i her forgetting her name and thinking of her of herself as me is um not really plausible uh but there are other ontologies like maybe the human brain is not a computer that <laughs> produces thought and has memory maybe it's a transducer for something that is non-material, and in which case it wouldn't be limited by memory formation, wouldn't be limited by the finite size of the brain. You might still have trouble accessing stuff that's not mirrored in the brain, 
but you may have a cloud solution where mm-hmm. you know memories get stored in the cloud and not in not on your local hard drive um and there's actually been in parapsychology and in physics there has been uh, a significant amount of thought devoted to the question of is are we our brains or is there something else that our brains are just transducing for us so the uh, the soul the ultimate cloud solution <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> that's pretty yeah i like i like it cuz i mean there is a very materialist sense in throughout this episode this materialist idea that um every that existence is about the material world that we inhabit and death is the end of everything it's in, yeah, it's pointless well, th- this is this is modern britain stephen moffat so yeah 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 um by the way speaking of modern britain things mm-hmm. um Catherine, what's her name the writer Mm-hmm. Uh, was not really having her dialogue be period appropriate. No anachronisms. Um, yeah, all over the place. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. she refers to the doc. She has a shielder refer to the doctor as her sidekick. Okay, sidekick is an Americanism, mm-hmm. and it dates its earliest recorded date is 1901. So we're like 250 years early on that one. And then later she refers to Sam Swift the Quick. And by the way, since his last name is Swift Mm -hmm. and he's described as the Quick, it's like, I just find that funny. Oh, that, yeah. no, that's, oh, the that's doctor, a clever one. That's yeah. a clever. The doctor points that out, in fact, I think. He does. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it suggests overcompensation or something. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but I just think it, the name itself is just funny. Oh. Um, but she has a shielder refer to him as Bingo Boy. Okay, the term bingo <laughs> is even more recent. It's only 100 years old. It's from 1920. Yeah. So we're like more than 200. We're like 270 years early on that one. You know, they, they missed out with the, the whole sidekick thing. I mean, come on. The doctor needed to be called her companion yeah oh that would be <laughs> that, good yeah that needed that that was just such a missed opportunity to have you know and to have the doctor just give her a dirty look right right that would have been yeah that would have been good <laughs> <laughs> so her her name i i, I, I yeah. do like at one point when the doctor doesn't yet realize it's a shoulder um and he she, he's robbing the same stagecoach that she's mm-hmm. robbing or the same coach um and they he, he you know they're both after goods that these that this rich couple has, and the doctor says, "Can't we share it? Isn't that what's ro- what robbery is all about?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good line. That yeah. was good. <laughs> no, there's some, like- there was some very quippy dialogue in this. I, I like. You yeah, know, Sam Swift had some good stuff. Um, of course, it, he knew it that. Was it, pretty you know, good. Yeah, you know, at the end there, where, where he's you know he was on the the the, the stand waiting to be hung. He, you know, he said, "You know, keep you laughing. They'll, they'll delay the hanging." Yeah, it was a little weird, the stand-up routine. I'm not sure. It, it's it's because of the it, casting. So yeah. I, I was going to say, I really like Sam Swift the Quick in this because yep. he's played by Rufus Hound. Rufus yeah. Hound is a British comedian. And so that's why they have him doing the stand-up routine and doing all the puns and quips and stuff like that. Okay. Um, he, I'm also familiar with him from... Now, where I'm really familiar with him from is Big Finish because mm-hmm. he plays the current incarnation of the meddling monk. Oh. And he is really good as nice. the meddling monk. He is an nice. awesome meddling monk. His, his comedic sensibilities are are really good, and lately they've been having him play against Missy, where oh, they have oh. the, the meddling monk functioning as Missy's companion. So you have this <laughs> totally out of control Missy, and the meddling monk is meddling, but he's more restrained than Missy is, <laughs> and so so she abuses him, and he's like kind of been drug along for the adventure, and is trying to find his way out of it, and you know, secretly <laughs> looking to betray Missy and get away from her, and all kinds of stuff. Um, so he is a he is a really good meddling monk. Oh, nice. we'll have to we'll have to do those in the future. Then that that sounds good. So her name of me, I, I feel like an allusion to 
the idea of, you know, the the God's self-appellation of I am, you know, this idea mm-hmm. I am me, just, you know, and this the singular alone uh, sort of idea. And I was trying to figure out, like, what if there was a if there was even anything deeper than that than just. I didn't take it that way. Um, I think the idea was just. Oh, she's so old, she's forgotten her name. What else would she call herself? Well, the truth is, she would call herself by another name. <laughs> and and it likely would be a mutate. If she did forget her original name, it would likely be a mutation that evolved over time from mm-hmm. a shilder. Like maybe she calls herself Ash now and doesn't remember being called anything other than Ash. Right. Um, but uh, Or it would be a random name picked out of the air or a name someone gave her. But mm-hmm. there, since there, this is this is TV, TV logic. Oh, you forget your name. You call yourself by a pronoun. You you're used to calling yourself mm-hmm. by a pronoun all the time, anyway. Right, right. The, uh, the she's kind of like Forrest Gump in the sense of you know we get this montage of all the all the amazing exploits that she's had. She's not lived, you know, all of her Mary Sue exploits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's a queen, uh, fights at Agincourt as hidden as a man, cures scarlet fever in a village, and then is, you know, the superstitious Christians, you know, try to drown her like a witch. witch. Yeah. How does she cure the scarlet fever? They don't They don't say. say. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's because she's Mary Sue, because as Mm -hmm. she says, you do, you need 10,000 hours to master any skill. This is a legend anyway. Yeah, and mm-hmm. at a hundred thousand, you're one of the best that's ever been, and she's got enormous amounts of practice at everything. So she is the bestest ever Mary Sue character. <laughs> you know, do you think it's true? I've heard that saying before, though. Like it takes ten thousand hours to become a master at 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 anything. Do you think that's a I, just I, a I myth? I, well, I, there's an element of truth in it. I don't. What I don't know is is, is it statistically validated? Mm-hmm. Um, because I. I I know because I've trained myself in multiple skills that, yeah, it takes a while to get really good. And um, I mean, it took me a long time, for example, to learn to call and Mm -hmm. learn to call multiple different forms of dance. Um, That's a skill and it took time to master Um, what I have. And the same is true of other skills that I've mastered. And I'm sure the same is true for y'all as well. Mm-hmm. Whether it's ten thousand specifically, I mean, I think it's going to depend on the skill. Yeah. Some skills are harder than others, um, but uh, that number of ten thousand hours gets thrown around in literature. There's like a book that made that famous, and I just I don't know that it's that that's a reasonable estimate. It's I think it really is going to depend. It's going to vary widely. And it's going to depend on what skill we're talking about. I think it's I think it's one of those numbers that's that's just it's a big number that shows if you're going to really master a skill, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take practice. It's going to take effort. And, yeah, there may be skills that and we, we each have our our strengths, too. You know, we have, mm-hmm. you know, someone might be better at, let's say, the logic required for computer programming. So they're going to pick up the programming skills very quickly. Whereas someone who doesn't, it's going to take them much longer to develop that. Vice versa, someone who's more physical might be able to pick up the skills necessary for a sport or, you know, something like that. Whereas someone who's not, you know, that, that isn't quite as physical, it's going to take them longer. So I, I think it's, it's, it's obviously meant to be kind of a guideline of you aren't going to become a master of anything by sitting down for five minutes and trying to do it. Yeah, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take sweat equity to use that term to figure it out. I've never heard that term, but okay. Oh, yeah. That means putting in the work. Yeah. Yeah, I inferred that from context. (laughs) So just for as a point of comparison, if you worked at a skill eight hours a day, so a third of a day, a third of your waking, Mm -hmm. you know, half of your waking life. Uh, 10,000 hours would be equivalent to approximately three and a half years That's, of effort. So yeah. Full-time job for three and a half years. That sounds reasonable. For some skills, that sounds entirely reasonable. Mm-hmm. Right. For, for others, to, yeah. maybe not so much. be high. Yeah. Yeah. But it's certainly true. I mean, that's this is the reason I don't play video games. Because I find, I know they have interesting video games today. I know they have plots that can rival those of movies and TV Mm -hmm. shows and that are very creative and interesting. 
But I, in order to get good at playing video games, I would have to be bad at playing video games for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> and I have other things that I want to do with my time besides be bad at video games. So that's, I, I've, I've, I haven't, as an adult, really played them. Back when I was playing them as a kid, you know, um, they weren't as, they weren't as sophisticated as they are now. But just for time of life reasons, at this time of life, I don't want to mm -hmm. spend endless hours being frustrated, being bad, because I didn't grow up with these games. You know, that's actually make, brings another interesting point up, which is that in order to to become that expert at 10,000 hours, this there's going to be a lot of time where you're bad at something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes being bad at, say, war <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. could, could, could have a very bad result. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, that's that's an interesting Interesting idea. So at one point, the doctor is talking about the things that are going to be coming in her future, in, in uh, Ashilda's future. And he mentions the Great Fire of London. And she says, oh, maybe I'll start it. You know, because she's yeah. she's bored. And so yep. she's looking for things to interest her. And he mentions that, nope, the Terraleptals uh, yep. started that. Yep. From the fifth doctor's time. The visitation that was the episode uh, one I didn't get to do. So uh, that was oh. uh, the, I was on vacation when you guys That's right. discussed yeah, that. The two of us did it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so because I was like Terra Leptals, and so yeah, I went back and looked at my, oh that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she does make uh, an argument that the Doctor owes it to her to take her away from her existence to and show her the universe, the galaxy. So he she says he owes it to her basically to make her a companion because he made her into what she is. Which is a kind of argument that could be made for a lot of the different companions who have been changed by the Doctor in different ways. But what do you make of that argument? I the, Her whole argument, I mean, half the episode was her, you've got to take me with you, you've got to take me with you, get me out of here. You know, I want to I fly now, I don't want to wait till the you know, 20th century to be able to do it. I just, I really didn't think very deeply about it, because it's just like, well... Yeah, like you said, if if the doctor took everyone that he changed with him, the TARDIS, even as big as it is, would be full. Yeah, yeah. I I also wonder if she was trying to look for an out so she didn't have to do what Lion Man, Lion Man was was asking her to do. Yeah. Oh, I think um, so. She would have preferred yeah. to go with the doctor. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I, I mean, I I kind of agree with that. He he doesn't owe her necessarily take her as a companion, but he might, you know, having he about, gave her her how life. About, how about one hop to a future century <laughs> where my advanced knowledge will be less disruptive? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, the, the 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 idea that I mean, he gave her life. Basically, he gave her life back. So I don't know that he owes her more uh, than that. Yeah. Well, I think if you make someone functionally immortal, you probably carry a little more responsibility than just jumpstarting their heart that's true that's true too yep um we we have you know she, she talks about having survived the black death like because she can be killed she's not you know uh, um uh, she's not immortal in that sense yeah and so but she does survive the black death and talks about having lost her children and we have this scene and yeah. that's a genuinely affecting scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the whole thing, I leave the pages in my diaries where I talk about my kids so that it serves a reminder not to have any more. Right. But, she, I mean, also, you think about it and, you know, you would get over their deaths eventually. I mean, people do. In fact, having two kids die of plague, that happened to lots of people. In the ancient world, it was the norm to not raise all of your children to adulthood. Right. If mm -hmm. you had seven kids, you may raise four of them. And right. it was, you know, young death in infancy was ex not just common, but expected to happen right. to everybody to some degree. Yeah. Yeah they, yeah. they talk about, you know, how we've got such a greater... Uh, average life lifespan now, and it's true, mm -hmm. and a lot of that is because of our medical system. But the biggest part of that is the fact that we don't expect kids to die in infancy now. The, the right. medical the system reason. has gotten that because people would live to be seventy, eighties years old back then, yeah. and that and wasn't would, all that uncommon. 
And it, yep. it was it, it, the reason the life expectancy was so low was because of how much infant mortality there was. Yeah. Um, if once you made it past infancy, you would live a respectable lifespan. Uh, there were people who lived to be 70 or 80 or even 90, but it was more common for people to live to be, you know, 45, 50, 60. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, 50s and 60s, I think, was kind of the median for where people would would die once you got past infancy. So and it didn't put people off having kids. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Exactly. <laughs> so so, you know, her her scene, while effectively. Um, well, tragically effective in an emotional sense it, the long-term decision of I'm never having kids again because I lost these two early is not true to history. Or falling in love again, having yeah. had others. And, and, yeah. and by the way, notice she she's never used her immortality pack because no one's ever good enough. So what does that say about your husband that had the kids with you? Right. You didn't use it on him? Really? You weren't that into him, were you? <laughs> right. Or any of like she could have been married and widowed uh, dozens of times, you know, throughout this. And none of them. That's surprising. Yeah. Um, this me, unlike the previous one, who, despite her annoyingness, is innocent and charming. This one just comes across as a selfish woman who who and is. That's, yeah. Cynical. Yeah, that's, that was yeah. the intention that she's selfish. She's. She's just, it's all about her. And, and again, that's the whole thing of, you know, take me away. I'm bored with this time. I'm bored with this place. Take me someplace that's more interesting and exciting. And I suppose by the time, the time we see her again, that, that aspect of her is also burned away. Like she's no longer mm -hmm. the, the, that. And so maybe that's where to, where to see this progression, this, this movement through these different well, personality types. And, and, you know, even at the end of this episode where, she goes, I actually do care about these people. I mean, that right there is, you know, a character right. change where the old, more caring person kind of comes back. Right. Although, again, kind of in a kind in of a weird. look at me, I actually do care about these people kind of way. But still. <laughs> yeah. Aren't I wonderful? Um, she she does confront the doctor. As we mentioned, why hasn't he made Clara immortal? Which that means he'd have to find the same technology somewhere and and whatnot. He could just have a replicator on the TARDIS mass produce them and make all of his companions immortal. He could. He could. Or give her uh, Artron energy or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and it is a bit of a prediction of Clara's fate, which is that she is not going to be immortal. And then maybe she will be functionally immortal. Because, you know, that yeah. whole she's also, she's thing. also notice that this episode hinges on Ishildur becoming like the doctor mm -hmm. and Clara's entire arc is Clara becomes like the doctor. Yeah. Yep. Um, he does tell her not to kill Sam Swift the quick. Um, and she thinks it doesn't matter. Like, what does it matter if he dies now or later? He'll die soon anyway. And the doctor does say, I know their lives are short. I understand, but those lives do matter. And I, th and I, you know, there's a, he's making the point, like where we may be, immortals but that doesn't make their lives any were any less worthy of being lived and so which is a which is a, a good point that needs to be made from time to time <laughs> i like one line that a shoulder has where which is highlighting the difference between the doctor and her and she says you get about while i trudge through the centuries and it's like yeah the this this show would be very different if the doctor didn't have wasn't immortal but didn't have the TARDIS yeah <laughs> um and just trudged through the centuries like a Shilder's been doing well he, you yeah. know he might go around and cutting off other immortal people's heads off oh wait that was Highlander <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, would be, that would be Highlander <laughs> by the way at eight hundred years old uh, a Shilder is older than the doc many of the incarnations of the Doctor yep. we've seen I mean yeah you know. Uh, so I, I haven't looked it up, but, and they've been inconsistent in new who with regard to mm -hmm. how old exactly the doctor is, but she's almost as old as the, uh, as the seventh doctor yeah, or eighth to eighth doctor. Unless you count from well, the timeless child. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. true. From the beginning yeah. of, of the, of William Hartnell's incarnation to then. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so the, one of the things that that's apparent in this is a shoulder is much more competent at pretty much most things in this episode than the doctor is. He's, he bumbles about a lot in mm-hmm. this, um, which is actually a bit of a throwback. It sort of recalls the second doctor in some ways, you know, cause the second doctor was not super competent. Like, like a lot of new who doctors have been. Um, so in one sense, it's a bit of a throwback in another sense. It's a bit of a, I don't know. Again, a, a little bit of a Mary Sue thing going on where, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the new character gets to be better than the doctor. And um, it's part of the comedy they try to use for for um, Peter Capaldi's doctor. Right, right. Yes, he does. Bumbling. He does bumble a bit. Um, you know, of the of the new era doctors, the one who didn't is uh, nine. Mm hmm. Nine and yes. nine and ten did not bumble much, but then eleven, twelve, and thirteen have have all been bumblers. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit of the the sort of the aesthetic of the age, like the just the, we the, the main character who um, isn't the heroic, you know, always competent type, but but is well, flawed. especially with the the twelfth Doctor, it's you know, he stumbles onto this final solution. He just yeah. all of a sudden, oh, wow, yeah, this is exactly what we're going to do, and, and that's it, you know, and he mm. solves, saves the day by whatever he just happened to trip over. So one of the things that comes up, uh, again, Shilder blaming the doctor for things, you, she tells him, you didn't save my life, doctor, you trapped me inside it. And, you know, th- there is, I don't know, a question about. No, he the- hasn't. You can just off yourself. <laughs> right, you're, right. You're not, a, you're not, a, you're not, you're not invulnerable. You could. You know, is this a dagger I see before me yourself? Right. Right. But there is a, a, a bit of a, for me, a question of the morality of eternal mortal life. Like is because it's, it's this idea of should should we want because there are people working today in the real mm-hmm. world to to create the, the singularity, to, to be, essentially have eternal mortal life where we never die to stop aging and all that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, cool. is this? Yeah, I mean, is this is that a moral thing to to hope for? Is to yeah. to never die? Yeah, um, I mean, it's not going to be practically possible to never die. Yeah, um, because uh, sooner or later there's going to be an accident. Um, but to have an open ended lifespan, there's nothing immoral about that. Mm-hmm. That was the original plan. Yeah. <laughs> and, so it, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with hoping for that or working towards that and seeing how much of it can be achieved. We've already yeah. achieved significant improvements, and there may be further improvements we can achieve. Because uh, you know, I've seen some people say, you know, we should not avoid heaven. I mean, heaven is our ultimate end. Our, like I said, we'll get there anyway. It's yeah. sooner or later there's going to be an accident. Sooner or later the second coming's going to happen. But right. that doesn't mean you don't try to improve and extend phys- people's health and lifespan in the short term. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I mean, yeah. I think if you're talking about the issues of like uploading your consciousness into an AI type thing, where yeah, well then you know, you're just you, you abandon your body and <laughs> then you're dead. You know, that that's that's something completely <laughs> different. But yeah. But the, the extending lifespan indefinitely would mm-hmm. not be inherently bad because uh, we yeah it won't be indefinite there will still be a definite end as as Jimmy says you know it, it, right one way or the one other. way or the other you know you're gonna trip over a rock somewhere and hit your head and that'll be it and it doesn't matter what speaking, else you did yeah, yeah eventually you will clutch yourself into the afterlife and, and one, one 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 thing I will or someone will, will murder you yeah I'll well, take care of the problem. Sure. Well, one thing I will ask. Okay, so Doctor reprogrammed the the alien med pack with his sonic screwdriver. Why didn't he just take the sonic screwdriver and put it to her head and hit the button to turn it off? Right. Well, it's absorbed into. Well, yeah. I mean, but yeah, you can come sonic up with any waves go through skin. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, I don't know something about it absorbed in her, but yeah, I mean, they could they could come up with any reason that it could work. I mean, it could. They created the idea in the first place. They could, you know, create a new way of turning it off. But you're right. He could have made her mortal again, which would be. Mm-hmm. But they want her to for this end game of yeah. the arc. So that sort of thing. But yes, it, he, that is a bit of a hole where he they could have had him figure out how to turn her off and let her be mortal. Not just not necessarily just kill her, but to let her live out a lifespan. Um, the doctor says at one point that immortals. It shouldn't travel together, which we, mm-hmm. as I've already discussed, is dumb because he traveled with other Time Lords. Um, but 
with no, the mayflies. Susan, Susan as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they should travel with the mayflies, which is how they refer to us, who know this life is fleeting and to make every second count. Um, which they actually set up uh, with Sam Swift mm-hmm. because they make a point of how he's embracing life up to its end. He's still having yeah. fun. He's still having adventures. Even when he he knows he's about to be executed, he's still making the most of the situation. Right. Do we ever get a, a line of dialogue in the Shilder's next appearance of what happens to Sam? I haven't looked that up, but he doesn't yeah. appear again. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, because the doctor basically said that because he was right at the point of death, that it basically drained the battery of the device. Oh, so he's not immortal. He's just. Well, no. So th- they're playing it both ways here. Um, yeah. The doctor tells a shoulder first that he that that because of the situation he was revived, but is not going to be long lived. And a shoulder then says to the doctor, did you just make all that up? And he says, <laughs> yes. Right. And 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 he's really going to be immortal or maybe not. So they're being deliberately ambiguous about is he immortal or not. But we're left with the conclusion the balance of evidence points to him being immortal unless we're told otherwise in the future. Mm. So um, opening the door for Rufus Hound to return as Sam Swift yeah. in the future. He kind of reminds me of, oh, who is that seventh doctor pirate guy? Uh, Gl- um, Sablon Glitz. Sablon Glitz. It kind of reminds me a little bit of that. I like Glitz, but not murderously psychotic. Right, right. And then we, you... What there's a little bit of implication of since they're the only two immortal humans, maybe they end up together, but they don't really go there, which is fine. I'm okay with that. Um, but uh, a shielder does tell the doctor, as we said, she'll look out for the people he abandons, and she says she'll be the patron saint of the doctor's leftovers, uh, which is an interesting turn of phrase. You know, one thing they did with a shielder so when we first meet her, she's using a man's voice, which she apparently spent 10,000 hours figuring out how to do. Hmm. And um, then later, and she's wearing a domino mask. So, you know, you and and the lower part of her face is cloaked. So you can't really see that she's a woman. And the man's voice strongly suggests that her high women character is a man. Um, and then later she explains the voice is just something she learned how to do. So later we meet. So in Shakespeare. There's and other literature, but in Shakespeare, there's a tradition of women being able to pass as men as and this happens especially in comedies. Um, But, you know, you have multiple Shakespeare plays where like uh, The Merchant of Venice, let's say, where you have women who are passing as men and it's a it's a it's a trope in literature of the period. Um so I kind of thought a shoulder passing as a man sort of played into that, you know, literary convention. It's like a callback because, you know, to 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 this thing that used to happen in literature all the time. But then when a shoulder meets Sam Swift, the quick, who thinks of her as the nightmare, as the highwayman persona mm-hmm. that she's affected for herself, um, she doesn't switch to using the man voice Mm-mm. and she's not covering the bottom of her face, making it much more obvious that she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though they ha- they do have a line later where when she is a shoulder and she meets Sam Swift, he says, you remind me of someone. Before that point, he seems to not realize that the nightmare is a woman. He still accepts her as a Mm. tiny, tiny man. um, (laughs) And who just sounds and looks like a woman. (laughs) (laughs) That is a bit of a a hole in the, uh, in the plot there. Yeah. They, and they could have fixed it just by, just by looping her dialogue in that Mm -hmm. scene. That would be enough to communicate. Okay. She's projecting the male persona now. That's why he believes her. They didn't right. have to. They didn't have to make her look totally male, just like 
today's modern female actors in Shakespearean plays where women are pretending to be men don't look totally like men, um, the audience will go along with it. And it would have communicated that she's she is projecting the male persona. And that's why he accepts her as a male. Right. So that brings us about to the end of the episode or any other uh, final thoughts on this, Father Corey? Nothing here. How about you, Jimmy? Um, so there's a nice bit kind of midway through where the doctor is, uh, in a confrontation with Leandro. It's before the final confrontation, but, um, the doctor is provoking Leandro and Leandro asks why. And the doctor says, I just want you to attack first. Then my conscience is clear. And yep. Leandro says of what of you. Um, and it's like, okay, that fits the doctor. We've seen that lots. The doctor Mm -hmm. will provoke people into attacking so he can kill them. And, and that's how he's, that's how he salves his conscience. Um, he's like, oh, I was attacked. It was okay for me to kill this person. I had to. Yeah, but you didn't have to provoke them into doing it. Right. Um, I like that he uses the psychic paper to, for something other than identification, yeah, he uses mm-hmm. it to fake a pardon from from Oliver Cromwell. Um, I liked when the special effects are attacking the village. One man, instead of running away, is seen kneeling and praying. Oh, just yeah. very briefly as as part of the scene as the camera pans by. Um, I thought the color imagery they bring in is a little cheesy. They they've got this artifact. It's called the Eyes of Hades or the Eye of Hades. Hades being a reference to the Greek deity of the underworld. Um, and and when a shielder slams the eye of Hades into Sam Swift's chest, a ray of purple light comes out and opens up the portal. And someone says, purple, the color of death. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, isn't that normally black in Western <laughs> societies and white in East Asian? Um who has mm-hmm. is his purple the color on Gallifrey or something? Well, it was it was and, Leandro that said it, so it was it must be oh, his, his race okay. uh, purple okay. is the color. Yeah, and and then when when they put when a shielder puts the immortality charge on Sam Swift's forehead and it sinks into him, the ray of light changes to white, and and Leandro says the light of immortality, and I thought I thought this color commentary was just a little cheesy, <laughs> a literal color commentary. Yeah. All right. And now we have some listener feedback that we want to share with you. And this is from our recent discussion on the Dominators, the second Doctor story. And this comes from YouTube, where Robert Hawkins sends this. As far as when the Doctor's first trip to Dulcis happens, not necessarily. Seasons one, two, and three all end and don't segue into the next story directly. So his trip could have happened between those stories. I exclude season four since Jamie doesn't remember the planet. I don't mind stories with a conservative view per se, but the problem here is that the portrayal of the Dulcians is so idiotically overdone as to be just as silly in the other direction as some of the Jodie Whittaker stories. This is a very, very poorly written story that just features two villains bickering and arguing over and over and over without going anywhere, a new monster you can't understand in the slightest, about as threatening as a box, a comically miscast Arthur Cox, Easily the worst complete surviving Troughton by a mile and probably tied with the underwater menace and the space pirates as the worst Troughton overall. Thoughts? Those are opinions, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I mean, I, I think they're respectable opinions. Um, I appreciate the idea. I'd have to go back and check to verify. But, yeah, it could have happened between seasons. And there are other ways, you know, to reconcile things like that. Um, I agree. We've got loads of bickering between mm-hmm. the two main the two main dominators, and he didn't even mention their ridiculous shoulder pads, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is the thing that I find hardest to take about the dominators. They just look so comical to me. Um, it's it's uh, I mean the name dominators, and they have these dominating shoulder pads. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> They, they're just I, ahead of the head of the time for the 80s fashion, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We will conquer you by intimidating you with our shoulder pads. <laughs> um, the um, and I think I pointed out during our commentary that, you know, this had even though the doctor 
who show is sometimes accused of being political in a liberal direction. This is one where it's in a conservative direction. Um, and you do, especially early in the show's history during the first and second and to a limited degree in the third doctor's time, you have conservative skewing messaging in the show. It's inconsistent. You also have liberal skewing messaging in the show. Eventually, the liberal skewing messaging takes over in New Who and just becomes de rigueur and much more annoying because it always goes in the same direction. But you do have a statement here where, where the Dulcians have 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 become too addicted to the idea of pacifism to do what they effectively need to do to protect themselves. They've lived at peace for so long, they've gotten high and mighty about it and are resistant to the idea of you may actually need to defend yourself now. This is, in a way, one of the things that happened with Europe after World War II, uh, because the uh, the thought World War II was so horrific that it put Europe off of war. And then we had the Cold War, where Europe was an ally of America and uh, because they didn't want to be taken over by the Soviet Union. And maintaining peace became this super priority. We didn't want World War III. And, and so you got this kind of pacifist ideology that affected Europe, European elites. And then after 9-11, it's like, wait, we need to maintain peace at all costs. It's like sometimes you need to go smash the enemy. Mm -hmm. and, right. and sometimes you do that in an appropriate way, like what happened with Afghanistan. And sometimes you make mistakes, like in my opinion, what happened with Iraq was a mistake. Um, I don't judge the people doing it, but I think in hindsight, it it I, it would have been better if we had not done that. As as for the uh, quarks being ridiculous, the mm -hmm. villain you know creatures, uh, there are a lot of kind of ridiculous villain creatures throughout this period of <laughs> the Yeti, the robo, robo Yetis were kind of silly. And mm -hmm. so I, I get the idea that they're, they look harmless. They look like children in, in outfits. Which and they that, are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the, the, I think it emphasizes the fact that the Dulcians are so incapable of taking care of themselves that they, they're, they, they can't even deal with a threat like this. And I think that might be, part of what they're getting at with it. I don't know, but I, I, I have a hard time criticizing them because there's a, you know, for this, because frankly, that uh, throughout the second first and second doctor's time, there are lots of these strange, not very threatening villains. Well, specifically robotic ones, because mm -hmm. we're trying to recapture the magic of the Daleks so that we don't have to mess <laughs> with the yep. Terry nationist with Terry nation anymore. Yeah. And there were loads of experiments that gave us the Chumleys and it gave us the the quarks and it gave us other things. And it's it's trying to catch lightning in a bottle a second time. Yep. yep. Um, do you think this is the worst uh, surviving Troughton? I haven't thought about that question. Yeah. Um, and I haven't yet seen the space. The, uh, the space pirates. Um, okay. And, you know, it doesn't survive, but it's, it, there are reconstructions of it and I haven't mm -hmm. done that yet. So I want to, I want to reserve, I, I need to, I need to see the space pirates first <laughs> to make a decision about what's the worst Troughton in terms of, is this the worst one that we have intact? I haven't thought about the question. Okay. But I didn't hate it. Yeah. I thought it had, I mean, I thought it was pretty paint by numbers, but it had some redeeming qualities. I like the fact that the Dominators are not both uniformly evil. I like right. the fact that the evil characters have conflict among them about how evil they should be. And one of them is, you know, amoral, but not really evil. You know, the head Dominator is like, don't worry, don't, don't fly off the handle about if they're not a threat to you, who cares? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I. I yeah. I'll go with that because yeah, I, did, I didn't think it was horrible. Horrible. But uh, yeah. 
All right. So that's our feedback. Thank you, Robert. And uh, now let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Anthony M., David G., Rick A., Christina T., and Dennis G. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who in all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Simon Zganik, who edited this episode for us. And so that's it from us. What did you think of The Woman Who Lived, this 12th Doctor story? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com, or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can now watch The Secrets of Doctor Who in video on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia, where you should be sure to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, and like the video. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the fifth Doctor story, The King's Demons, uh, because it's always demons. Mm. Until then, <laughs> Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor oh, Who. Oh, that's We're gonna be it. Interesting. We're gonna, uh, thanks, Dom. Chame- chameleon's coming. Oh, no. Chameleon <laughs> is coming. <laughs> Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and stand and deliver. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, this is banter. I'm against banter. I'm on record on the subject of banter. Banter.